Hey, this is Sarah McCammon at a Hillary Clinton rally in South Carolina. Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. If you want a podcast about social science you can apply to your everyday life, check out Hidden Brain. They cover things like the surprising forces that drive romantic relationships, how resolutions work or not, the psychology of terrorist groups, and more. Find the Hidden Brain podcast with NPR's Shankar Vedantam at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Okay, here's the show. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast coming to you from the studios of South Carolina Public Radio this week. We're going to talk about how the race for president will change now that this is the next stop on the road to the White House. We will touch on last night's Democratic debate. We'll talk about why things get so dirty in South Carolina politics. And yes, because you asked, we're going to talk superdelegates, the VIPs of the Democratic nomination process. First, some introductions. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter for NPR. I'm Sarah McCammon, also covering the campaign and also here in South Carolina. And here at NPR headquarters, I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, senior correspondent here in Washington as well. All right, before we get started, quick plug. If you like the show, if you like this episode, rate this podcast on iTunes. That will help other people find the show, and that will help us keep doing the show. And if you already rated the show, big ups, much obliged, thank you. So Sarah and I are here in Columbia, South Carolina. Sarah, have you gotten any barbecue yet? No, but as you know, some good trout We last got some really night. good seafood last night. We went to the Blue Marlin. Yeah. It was can, real good. Can I tell them about our waitress? <laughs> tell them about our waitress. <laughs> so uh, just for the record, Sam and I are not a couple. We're not We're not a couple. Uh, it was so funny that the waitress comes, you know, the dinner, we're, we're having dinner. Sam and I, by the way, hadn't talked to anyone in like a week that wasn't an interviewee. So we're like, let's have dinner. And she comes and I'm like, hey, separate checks. And she looks like crestfallen. She's like, what? <laughs> Like a bad first date? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we're, we're working, blah, blah, blah. I was like, blah. we're co-workers. And then she's like, y'all aren't married? She's I'm like, you're not a couple? Yeah. And then I said, I know Sarah's husband. He's quite a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, and also, I don't think I want to raise her kids. <laughs> <laughs> but it was cute. She was like, she really she was, was like really sweet. rooting for us being she a couple. She was really sweet. But, you know. Shout out to Blue Marlin. Oh, Great well. food. So we're here because Iowa is done. New Hampshire is done. We had an episode on Wednesday about the New Hampshire results. Check that one out if you missed it. And now the next state primary is here in South Carolina. The GOP votes February 20th. The Democrats vote here a week after that. But let's talk about the Dem side of this race first for a minute, because one of the storylines we're going to hear now in the next few weeks is about black voters who weren't a big part of the equation in either Iowa or New Hampshire. And in South Carolina, black voters make up probably over half of the Democratic primary voters that are going to vote on February 27th. And so what we're talking about now is there's three things we're going to test in South Carolina when it comes to Democrats. We're going to see how strong is Clinton's hold on the nomination, the theory being that uh, she's done so well in South Carolina that she's going to win big here and it's going to buttress this idea that Bernie's really challenging her, partly because of her historical really deep support among black voters. But... We are now seeing what we have seen across other voting blocks is this generational divide between older black voters and younger black voters, older black voters being drawn to the Clinton camp, younger black voters, particularly new voters are intrigued by Bernie. He's getting some interesting endorsements that we can talk about. And the bigger idea in South Carolina is we're going to test how engaged black voters are in this election. Are they going to turn out? in uh, really high numbers like they did in 2008. Obviously, having Barack Obama in the race then changed the dynamic there. But 
we can't understate how important black voters are to the Democratic coalition. And it's not just about South Carolina. It's about November. And Democrats really need black voters to be engaged and turning out. It's going to be really interesting to see in South Carolina what that level of engagement is. Yeah. And, you know, um, last night during the debate in this fight for black voters in South Carolina, um, there was some discussion of the president who is still very popular with black voters. Today, Senator Sanders said that President Obama failed the presidential leadership test. And this is not the first time that he has criticized President Obama. Uh, in the past, he's called him weak. He's called him a disappointment. He uh, wrote a foreword for a book that uh, basically argued uh, voters should have buyer's remorse when it comes to uh, President Obama's uh, leadership and legacy. Uh, Madam Secretary, that is a low blow. I have worked with President Obama for the last seven years. Calling the president weak, calling him a disappointment, calling several times that he should have a primary opponent when he ran for re-election in 2012. One of us ran against Barack Obama. I was not that candidate. So, Ron, what should we make of that exchange? This is part of a larger Hillary Clinton strategy in which she uses Barack Obama both as human shield when she says, yeah, I took money from Wall Street, so did Barack Obama, and also as a touchstone where she says, yeah, well, if you liked Barack Obama, I'm the person he chose to run his foreign policy. Sure, I voted for the Iraq war, and he didn't. But even though we disagreed on that... And yet, when he won, he turned to me, trusting my judgment, my experience, to become Secretary of State. I was very honored. And so she's using him in lots of different ways, wrapping herself, if you will, in Barack Obama because she knows he's very popular, not only with black voters in South Carolina, but with Democratic voters all over the country. And when we move away from New Hampshire and we have more of a domination of the Democratic vote by Democrats, in the end, if it's necessary, the signals from the White House as to whom he favors will become clearer and clearer. There's no real question about it. Her campaign is shot through with former Obama people. Uh, the White House has taken in a lot of former Clinton people. There has been an informal alliance between the Clintons and Barack Obama ever since she capitulated to him in the summer of 2008. The Secretary of State was just part of that. Yeah. Sam, what are you hearing in South Carolina when you talk to voters? I mean, what are they? how do they view the Clintons, particularly younger voters there? Yeah, you know, so I've been out here since Monday, and I spent my first two or three days here trying to talk to young black voters. And I hung out with the College Democrats at University of South Carolina. I went to a few pro-Hillary rallies at Claflin University and SC State, two black colleges. And I found a lot of young black voters wavering in their support for Hillary Clinton. Uh, a lot, which surprised me. There was one guy I spoke with who's actually a fan of our podcast. His name is Matthew Cawthon. First, when I talked to him, he said that he was undecided, but then he said this. I, I think I'll vote for her on election. I know I'll vote for her on election okay. day, probably. Will you vote for her in the primary? Yeah. So yeah. then you're a Hillary voter. Yeah. You were, you were very reluctant to say that earlier. So there's like something about yeah, her is not working for you. Yeah, and I, I, I don't know what it is. Um, and so, I mean, just to be clear, I talked to Michael Cawthon about this, but he was not the only one. He is not an outlier. There were lots of young black voters with some serious doubts about Hillary Clinton. So I don't want to single him out unfairly. I talked to a few people at Claflin and SC State who said they have serious questions about Hillary and Bill Clinton's record. They point to the 94 crime bill, 96 reform of welfare, and they said those policies weren't good for black people. And they're going to hold Hillary as accountable for that as they do her husband. Um, and that's a thing that we have 
haven't been hearing yet because the idea is that black voters are this firewall for her, they're this firewall for her. But I find a lot of young voters that are into Bernie and have major questions about Hillary. It's so interesting to me, too, when you think about younger voters who don't have a frame of reference for Bill Clinton. And then when they Google him, which you hear a lot, when they look up his record, that they're having this like very negative reaction to the Clinton years. It's just a really interesting dynamic to me. And you know what? I think a lot of the questions about Bill Clinton are a direct result of the lingering significance of the Black Lives Matter movement. This is a movement that is raising questions about not just policing, but the effect of, of like government policy on black people. And they're constantly raising questions about some of the Clinton era policies. So I talked to a student, uh, her name is Taylor Honore, and she had done her research. I did my background research on what Hillary has really done for the black community, and it kind of concerned me. They're tough on crime politics that were enforced when Bill Clinton was in office. Basically, she was not very old and not old enough to know what was going on when Bill Clinton was president. But her and a lot of other young people are taking time to research and look back and read up on what happened then. You know, I also asked this same young woman uh, whether she felt any solidarity or duty to vote for Hillary Clinton because she's a woman. And I said there's been sort of a this rallying cry of certain feminists to support her. And she said this. I, I haven't felt a part of the electoral conversation so far. And I, I view myself as a feminist, but um, but as far as feminism and black feminism, they're two completely different things. So, so many of the arguments that I think Hillary Clinton was expecting to work for voters aren't working yet for young black voters. And I think that's surprising to people. And I think that she's going to have to grapple with that. And this happens at the same time where you have prominent black voices like ta Coates and Michelle Alexander speak out against Clinton. And Sanders keeps racking up lots of endorsements from black people. Um, just this week, Erica Garner supported Bernie Sanders. She's the daughter of Eric Garner. This is a man who was strangled by NYPD and uh, died. So there's there's this wave of kind of young black endorsement of Bernie at the same time where the old vanguard, the Congressional Black Caucus, PAC, spoke out in favor of Hillary Clinton this week. And there was a very interesting press conference in which Congressman John Lewis threw some shade at Bernie Sanders. Uh, Sanders had spoken extensively about his work in the civil rights movement. And John Lewis was like, "Uh, uh-uh, not so fast. But I never saw him. I never met him. I would chair the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee for three years, from 1963 to 1966. I was involved in the sit-ins, the Freedom Ride, the March on Washington, the March from Selma to Montgomery, and directed the Voter Education Project for six years. But I met Hillary Clinton. It's just starting to get heated, and I think that we're going to see... Uh, the battle for black votes in South Carolina get testier and testier as that race comes closer. What's interesting about Sanders, too, is that he is not someone prior to this presidential run that is known for having particularly strong ties in the black community. Part of that is because he's from Vermont and there aren't a lot of black voters in Vermont. And he's, you know, he has said he's been on the right side of civil rights issues, that he agrees with it. But he's not someone who in Congress or in his his political career has ever really 
until now carved out a space in the civil rights conversation. Um, the Clinton people like to note that Bernie Sanders voted for that crime bill in 1994 when he was a member exactly. of the House, that he has not necessarily been on the other side of that issue. He's not someone that's known for having a relationship with the Congressional Black Caucus, where I think members like John Lewis and Charlie Rangel are, have a very long relationship with the Clintons, a lot of old ties there. Um, what I did think when you talked about the Erica Garner video, where I think she captured it, this the sentiment of young, young black voters I thought was really interesting, where she said, you know, like right now we're in this, we're in a moment of protest. And that when I look at Bernie Sanders, he to me is someone who would be protesting in the street with us. And I thought that's, huh. a, that's a really good way of framing it is that his anger and his, his message, he seems like a guy that would be out with a bullhorn in the street. And the Clintons seem like they would be, you know, inside trying to mediate the conversation. This may be one of those instances where something other than racial identity also is really moving the younger generation of voters. There's a generational component here. There's an ideological component here. And the younger elements and the more liberal elements of the Democratic Party really have only had two candidates of their preference in more than 60 years in the Democratic Party. They had JFK in 1960, and then they had Barack Obama in 2008. And in between, they were always forced to settle for somebody who was the preference of the older and the somewhat more moderate or centrist elements of the Democratic Party. And now that they've had Obama, they don't want to move back in the other direction. They want to go further in their direction. They want to have somebody who is speaking more to their generational issues and speaking more to their ideological bent. And that, in this case, is Bernie Sanders, even if he is generationally of the older generation. They're new to him. He's new to them. And he speaks to an authenticity that is really what they're looking for, and youth usually does. Yeah. And, you know, just to be clear, I've talked to some state party leaders here in uh, South Carolina. They do say that still it seems like the overwhelming large margin of um, support from the black community goes to Hillary. This might be shifting, but they still think that Hillary has a strong, strong buffer in older black voters. And it's important to point out that these differences between older voters and younger voters, that exists amongst all racial groups. It's not odd to see young voters of any color not vote the same way that their parents are. That said, um, Ron, what's the last word on this? How do these candidates move forward in, in the next few weeks? How should this play out? First thing we need to remember is that the next test between Sanders and Clinton is not South Carolina. It's actually in Nevada, which is coming up on the 20th. And that is not a particularly African-American Democratic vote. That is much more of a Hispanic Democratic vote. And it also is much more union organized. And it is a little bit more traditional. But here again, you have the same generational preference and the same ideological preference for Bernie Sanders and all of his assets are just beginning to be brought to bear there as people become more aware of him. So we're looking there first. We'll get some signals from there. And then, of course, the big test is the 27th in South Carolina. So next, we're going to cover the GOP side of the race here in South Carolina and beyond. But first, a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Personal Capital, the smart way to track and manage your net worth. See all your financial accounts in one place and get free online investing software and money management tools. You can even speak with a dedicated personal investment advisor. Join us today at personalcapital.com politics. Okay, we're back. The GOP, there are fewer of them now. Chris Christie and Carly Fiorina both dropped out after pretty poor performances in New Hampshire. But this race is still very complicated. What are we looking at over the next week as these candidates head to South Carolina? Sarah? 
Well, you know, obviously Donald Trump uh, is coming out of New Hampshire with some steam and on top of the polls. Uh, I think there are a couple big questions. One, can anybody overtake him? Ted Cruz looks best poised to do that, if anyone can. He's polling second, popular with evangelicals and uh, Tea Partiers, two big groups here in South Carolina. The other big question is, who is the establishment going to get behind? We don't know, really, coming out of New Hampshire and Iowa, who the establishment favorite is. We've lost some options, but there are still several people in the race, namely Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and John Kasich, who are all kind of vying for that title. So I went to a Marco Rubio rally a couple days ago, and I talked to one woman in particular who doesn't like Trump, but she likes authenticity and honesty, and she says she doesn't really believe anybody who's running. Here's what she had to say. I I do not like his character, although he has been honest. At least we can give him that. He's been more honest than most people. Um, I like that he goes against the establishment. He is not a career politician, um, but he's just not got the morals that I stand for. So that was uh, Shay Stetler, and she was at a Marco Rubio rally in Spartanburg this week. Hasn't decided who she's going to vote for. Not convinced. She said she's seen Cruz and Rubio in person, and she'd give them a 50-50 rating in terms of authenticity. So I think that, you know, sort of the non-Trump people are really up in the air right now. I'm guessing, too, that Ted Cruz is going to be, like he was in New Hampshire, uh, easily underestimated. He doesn't have nearly the kind of flash that the Trump campaign does. He is not as appealing as Marco Rubio. He doesn't have the kind of uh, gubernatorial experience that some people are looking for, but he's awfully good at targeting his voters. And in New Hampshire, he looked around, he said, all right, I'm not going to be number one, but boy, I know how to find my people. So we found some of Ron Paul's people who are numerous in New Hampshire. Uh, they don't have a candidate anymore since Rand Paul, Ron Paul's son dropped out. And he also found the people who are willing to tell pollsters they are very conservative. That was his hard base in Iowa. And finally, he found evangelical voters in New Hampshire. He found all three of those groups, Ted Cruz did, through his highly sophisticated Dana binding and voter identification work. He has state-of-the-art stuff like Obama was way out in front in 2008 on this. And I believe Ted Cruz is going to be a force in South Carolina. I, I'm hearing that he's doing the same thing here. He, he's got a very sophisticated operation and a strong organization in South Carolina. He's identifying those voters who are likely to support him and getting in touch with them. And that evangelical conservative Christian vote, I mean, shouldn't be underestimated here either. I, I'm told it's more than maybe 60 percent of Republican voters identify that way. This is the home of Bob Jones University, which, by the way, is up in the upstate, which is the most solidly, reliably Republican part of the state. You know, Cruz's campaign there, not to be underestimated, as you say. So, Sarah, let's talk about Jeb Bush. Is South Carolina the last stand for the Bush campaign? I mean, if he doesn't win here, can this can his campaign go on? It's hard to see how if he doesn't make an impressive showing here where he goes from here. I mean, he does, of course, have a lot of money and a big organization. So, you know, arguably could ride that quite a while. But at the same time, this is a place where if if Jeb Bush is going to pick up any steam, he should. Uh, his brother is very popular here, I'm told. Uh, the Bush family has a long history here. And uh, the, the military contingent of the Republican Party is, is a big part of the party. There are several bases scattered throughout the state. And that's a, that's a place where the Bush name is seen as having some appeal, too. When you talk to Republicans there, do they think bringing out former President Bush, W. Bush, to campaign is a good idea? I mean, what's the response to that? This is the first time we're going to see the former president on the campaign trail probably since he ran for his own reelection. 
They do. And uh, as unpopular as George W. Bush was when he left office, what I'm hearing from Republicans here in South Carolina is that at here he is a beloved figure. Uh, he came here a lot as president, helped raise money for the state GOP, helped build up the party here. Uh, I talked to Caton Dawson, former GOP chairman, and uh, here's what he had to say about that. Because we've been looking for our version of Bill Clinton, and, and our complaint has been we've been asking the president to come off the ranch for a while. I mean, we were eight years as a political party in charge of the White House, and 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 we haven't had a Bill Clinton out there raising money and stumping for us. I'm not saying I agree with Bill Clinton, but he has done a lot for the Democrat Party and has been a stable force in refereeing for it. Now he's for his wife, and I get that. But George Bush would be welcome in South Carolina anytime, any day, any place by overwhelming numbers of people. And I've heard that from more than one Republican here, the sense that maybe it's time now for George W. to reappear. That's so fascinating to me because we are in an election cycle where the one thing that we keep being beat over the head with is how much voters are frustrated with the establishment and the party leaders and the idea that George W. Bush can come out and electrify voters. It's gonna, I, I'm fascinated by that. It's going to be a really interesting test. Well, he's a great campaigner. He's uh, He's got a lot of swagger and, you know, sense but of humor. But isn't that the risk for Jeb, that his brother was always the better politician? I mean, does he not want to, he doesn't want to be outshined on the stage. I mean, his mother has already <laughs> outshined him. Like, his mother's been out there with I, I mean, at events with him and outshined him. But what does Jeb Bush have to lose at this point, That's right? That's true. It's been described to me as a Hail Mary pass, that he's got nothing left, so why not? You know, he's got nothing left to lose, so why not bring out his brother? And there is a lot of money still in the coffers of this extraordinarily well-supplied pack that uh, is supporting Jeb Bush. So theoretically, if the humiliation has not gotten to him, if he does poorly in South Carolina, he could still hang on for the winner-take-all Florida primary on March 15th. But with Marco in the race and all these other candidates ahead of him, it just doesn't look like Jeb's going to have a prayer in that particular test unless he can break through in South Carolina. So let's just talk, if we can, for a minute about South Carolina and the fact that this place, this state, is kind of known as the part of a presidential election where things get really dirty. Like, I didn't know this was a thing, but now I know it's a thing. And why is it this a thing? I mean, it's been a thing for a really long time, right? Ron, you, you probably know more about this than anybody. Yes. And before I throw any kind of aspersions on any other state, let me say I grew up in Chicago. Uh, and so when Dirty I, Chicago. When I die, I'd like to be buried there so I can remain active in politics. But... <laughs> But South, here all week, guys. South Carolina has this longstanding tradition of kind of no-holds-barred politics in which anything seems to be fair game. And in the year 2000, that included these push phone calls and flyers and so on that told the voters of South Carolina that John McCain had a black child. And they I had pictures, that. they had pictures and so forth. And of course, there's an adopted child in the McCain family. And the implication, of course, was something different. And this was, at the time, considered to be pretty toxic stuff. And a lot of people thought John McCain, coming out of New Hampshire with a 20-point win, would really do well in South Carolina. And instead, he tanked, and George W. Bush marched on to the nomination. Huh. What's funny about South Carolina, too, is that you know there's so much negative talk about negative politics, and voters don't want to hear this. But South Carolina kind of embraces its role as being a dirty politics state. Lindsey Graham, who's a senator former and a former presidential contender who's now endorsed Jeb Bush, said going into South Carolina, like, come ready to play if you want to compete in South Carolina. And that it's sort of a self-perpetuating phenomenon that South Carolina Republicans like the fact that it's a state where you have to, you know, play a little bit dirty. 
And so this is, a, I was just reading this, there's a story in the Washington Post that's like, a good example of what's happening right now in South Carolina that's an example of these dirty tricks. And it's called push calling, where they could do these automated calls into uh, voters' houses and under the guise of sort of trying to guess who you're going to vote for. And they, they interview this one woman and it says, you know, she presses the button that says she's supporting Marco Rubio. And then the voice says, well, are you aware of the fact that Marco Rubio's uh, if for letting Syrians cross freely into the country? Oh, wow. Which is not true, of course. The push poll was being done by something called Remington Research, which is a research outfit that is part of Jeff Rowe's uh, political operation, Jeff Rowe being Ted Cruz's campaign manager. And so when they went to the Cruz campaign and said, why are you doing this? They said, we're not doing it. Perhaps it is someone posing as Jeff Rowe's campaign organization to sort of double ninja this negative attack double ninja. To, to make you think <laughs> it's Ted Cruz going negative. So it's like maybe oh maybe Marco Rubio is posing as Ted Cruz's campaign to is, go negative is there, on. Is there, Who do you believe? Jedi, is there a Jedi mind Exactly. Trick like it's the layers of complexity of going negative in South Carolina are really fascinating. Shade on shade on shade. And, you know, I would look for more of that. Uh, a lot of this is going to come from the rumor mill, the whisper campaigns, the super PACs, so that the candidates can distance themselves from what's being said and done. You know, the super PACs can put these things out, but the candidate can say, well, we don't coordinate. I had nothing to do with that. But will there be any big salacious rumors that approach the 2000 McCain rumor level? I'm betting we won't. I don't think we're going to get there this time. It's not a mano a mano like it was in 2000. It's a little too tricky to know just exactly how the balls would bounce off the sides of the pool table if you started knocking them around in quite that way. So given the particular lineup that we have right now on the Republican side, I would say not. And on the Democratic side, there's a huge, huge, <laughs> huge downside huge. to it either candidate trying something of that nature and having it backfire. Although I wouldn't be surprised if we hear more from Donald Trump questioning where Ted Cruz was born, talking about him being born in Canada. Where did I that mean, go? That was so hot for might, a while. Yeah, I mean, the debate's going to be interesting to see if they sort of revive some of these attacks. And Donald Trump, you know, South Carolina is a good playground for him. He likes throwing these punches. So if voters like it there, this might, you know, feed into his style. And that debate that Susan is referencing, that may have already happened by the time you hear this. It's on Saturday night. And we'll talk about that in an episode next week. All right. We have heard from a lot of listeners this week asking us to explain the delegate situation, particularly on the Democratic side of this race, uh, because there are a lot of articles this week about how even though Bernie Sanders won New Hampshire and almost won Iowa, he is actually far behind in the delegate count. And that actually determines who gets of the nomination, correct? Yes, that's correct. Ultimately, the delegates who go to the convention in Philadelphia will choose the Democratic nominee. But let's be clear, the people that Hillary Clinton is counting on at this point are actually unpledged delegates, oftentimes called superdelegates. But there are a little over 700 of them, and they are elected officials from around the country, a portion between the states on the basis of how many people live in those states and how many Democrats they elect. That's the important thing. So big Democratic states like California and New York really get a lot of superdelegates. Now, right now, the superdelegates have, insofar as they have come out for a candidate, they have almost all come out for Hillary Clinton. So she's hundreds of delegates ahead in the national count, but they're not set. They're not bound. They can still change their minds. They changed their minds back in 2008. To some degree, they changed their minds in 2004. They could do it again. But right now, they're with Hillary Clinton. And that doesn't just mean nationally. It also means she got a big chunk of superdelegates out of Iowa and New Hampshire. That's why it looks like she's ahead in delegates, even though he's gotten more votes. I'm sure that Sanders supporters must be pretty mad about that. It seems like it's rigged for Hillary, no? 
It's the way the system has been set up uh, since the early 1980s, and it was a reaction to a reaction. After the 1968 convention blew up, people said, hey, we're tired of having the party bosses pick the delegates who pick the convention's nominee. So we want to have the primaries and caucuses choose the actual delegates who come so that ordinary Americans, Democrats, can come and choose their own nominee on their own. And starting in 1972, that was the case. They chose George McGovernie, lost 49 states, and they promptly appointed another commission that said, we need to get back to some of the old systems. So they went to 30% superdelegates, then down to 15% superdelegates. Now we're at 20% superdelegates, and they're supposed to be the ballast that, in some sense or another, counters an excess of democracy in the primaries. Yeah. And when we talk about superdelegates, I mean, we talk about it in the Republican lane so much about the establishment and the establishment. In the Democratic Party, superdelegates are the establishment. It's supposed to exist as the buffer so that they don't nominate someone that the establishment thinks can't win in November. And the establishment thinks that Hillary Clinton is the best candidate to defeat whoever the Republican nominee is. Um, it is true that superdelegates could change their minds. But if superdelegates start leaving Hillary Clinton in droves, it means something bigger. It means she's collapsing. It means Bernie Sanders is winning in ways that we did not expect. And they, they're going to get behind the nominee. But the reality check is that Hillary Clinton is still very well positioned to win the nomination. And so, by the way, the GOP does not have superdelegates, or do they? What's the deal with that? They have some people who function in the same way. It's They're not as numerous, and they don't call them superdelegates. The Democrats don't either. That's just a word that we came up with in the media. So at what point in the calendar do we begin to get some sense of who's going to come out on top? Well, to bring it back to South Carolina, if Bernie Sanders wins South Carolina, that is a tectonic plate shift in the Democratic race. Yes. Okay. And if he doesn't win South Carolina, but does much better than he was previously expected to do. So it's sort of an Iowa situation. Uh, and if he does the same in Nevada, that's going to put a big thumb on the scale going into March 1st when we have a dozen states voting, largely in the South, but some of them are not in the South. One of them is Vermont. I predict Bernie Sanders will win <laughs> Vermont. And if he does well on March 1st, or if he even gets a draw, then what we see is a replay of 2008 because Barack Obama fought to a draw on Super Tuesday that year. And from then on, it was increasingly his to lose. Is there much of a chance on either side of these unpledged delegates or superdelegates being like the decisive factor? And if that were to happen, I mean, what, what does that do for this sense of anger at the establishment? Well, it, it depends on which way they wind up going. If they, for some reason or another, forsook Hillary Clinton and went with Bernie Sanders and he swept on to the presidency in November, then it would be seen as working great uh, by those people. On the other hand, what we saw in 2008 was initially they were with Hillary Clinton after Barack Obama showed he could win white votes, the black members of the superdelegate group, that is to say those superdelegates who were themselves African-American or responsive to African-Americans, decided, oh, gee, we can't really be against the black guy. So they changed their minds and came <laughs> over onto the Barack Obama side. And that is kind of what superdelegates are intended to do. They're supposed to be ballast, and the ballast can work in either direction to keep the ship, uh, in their view at least, on an even keel. Okay, now it's time for Can't Let It Go, where we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Susan? So I, my Can't Let It Go this week is the presidential tease that is former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Uh, once again, he is out there saying that he might, he just might, maybe he's going to run for president as an independent candidate. Uh, you know, 
Bloomberg, every four years, he seems to get this itch. He likes to be talked about in the presidential space. But then when you talk to anybody, Democrat, Republican, people who like Michael Bloomberg, they always say he's not going to do it. Um, and again, that he had he's already had uh, advisors out sort of putting stories out there that he's looking at it. He in an interview with The Financial Times personally said, hey, I'm thinking about it. I might get in. Um, and I just you know, I just need Michael Bloomberg to make a decision and either get in <laughs> figure it out dude. or just be quiet. But the thing with him, it's like if you look at his record and his policies in New York, like yeah. he does not fit any molds, really. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, everyone's breaking the mold in this cycle. Like there are all the old rules don't seem to be applying this year. So why not? Uh, and I think that and the thing that Mike Bloomberg has that, you know, that could do it is billions and billions and billions of dollars. So to run a third party race, it would be incredibly expensive. You have to pay your own way to get on all the ballots in the states. Each state has its own election laws. So it's a very complicated process. You couldn't do it unless you were incredibly wealthy or had an incredible fundraising operation and he can sell fund. So I think that that is what keeps him as seen as a somewhat serious contender if he were to do it. It still seems unlikely that an independent run could get you into the White House, uh, particularly because of the way the Electoral College works. But, you know, he I think he just likes being part of the conversation. He's not in elected <laughs> office anymore. Uh, you know, he's had a super PAC that he's been trying to engage in politics on gun issues to try and change gun laws. Oh, yeah. I mean, he still really wants to play in the political space and he still really wants to be talked about. But you don't you know, he sort of elicits eye rolls when you talk to people about whether or not he's really going to do it. Cool. Sarah? Uh, well, mine is almost as uh, academic and intellectual as Sue's. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, mine is two words, uh, Conservatives Anonymous, which is the title of a Ted Cruz campaign ad that is no more. Now, let's not forget that Ted Cruz is the candidate that is trying really hard to appeal to evangelicals who helped him win Iowa. They're really important here in South Carolina. He talks about his faith. He talks about conservative Christian principles all the time. And oops, this week he had to pull an ad because one of the actresses in this ad was a softcore porn actress. We cannot say those three words on the podcast. She was an actress in adult no, films. No, I'm kidding. We can say those words. Uh, can I just like read some of the names of these? <laughs> uh, carnal Wishes. <laughs> My favorite is Secrets of a Chambermaid. I mean, what is that? But, so I think we have a little tape from, from this ad that was pulled. Has anyone else here struggled with being lied to. Well, I voted for a guy who was a Tea Party hero on the campaign trail, and then he went to D.C. and played patty cake with Chuck Schumer and cut a deal on amnesty. Mm. Does that make you angry? Angry? Oh, it makes me feel dumb for trusting him. Maybe you should vote for more than just a pretty face next time. Yeah, <laughs> just a pretty face. So her name's Amy Lindsay, and she tweeted that she was extremely disappointed that the Ted Cruz campaign pulled the spot. I mean, of course the Ted Cruz campaign had to pull the spot. They say that, of course, they didn't know about her uh, her previous uh, resume before they hired her for this. You know, she went to a casting call, got the job. Things happen. Um, but, you know, I guess you could also argue uh, it's a good thing that the Cruz campaign didn't immediately recognize this actress? Well, that's my question. <laughs> Who was it that watched this ad and did recognize the actress? <laughs> No one in the Cruise I mean, campaign. BuzzFeed yeah. first reported it, so my, 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 my money would be on someone at BuzzFeed, but I don't know that. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's got to work. I'm not mad at her. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, got to have She shouldn't be blacklisted. <laughs> Isn't this what's known as getting a straight job? <laughs> yeah. And she says she's a conservative Republican, guys. So, I mean, you know, she was sincere, apparently. I, I can't let it go, so. All right. 
Ron, what can you not let go this week? I can't let go of the echoes of 1968. We're hearing it all over the place. I think we talked about it a little bit earlier in the podcast. But whether you're talking about the Bernie Sanders comparison to Gene McCarthy or later on in 1972 to George McGovern, or whether you're talking about where superdelegates came from, whatever subject, it always seems to be harking back to what happened in 1968. And of course, what goes around comes around. The people who upset the Democratic Party totally back in 1968 are now the parents and grandparents of the millennial generation, which is saying, hey, we don't want your conventional successor candidate, Hillary Clinton. We want to choose our own person. And we like this guy, Bernie Sanders, because he's authentic. He's genuine. He's not a typical politician. What lessons or predictions can we draw from 68 as we continue through this race, Ron? 68, the the insurgents, uh, for all the fuss that they made, this is the baby boom generation, uh, were not able to nominate their favorite candidates. Hubert Humphrey won the nomination and almost won in November, but lost to Richard Nixon. Four years later, the insurgents had their revenge. They nominated George McGovern. He lost 49 states. So there are going to be different lessons drawn depending on which camp you're in. Some people are going to look back and say, you see, you blew it for us then, and now you're going to try to blow it for us again. And then you're going to hear other people say, no, the change has to come and managing the change and giving the people what they want in this year of demand for authenticity is more important than anything and you can keep your history yeah we shall see huh i believe we will (laughs) (laughs) i hope we all make it to november sam All right, well, I have a thing that I can't let go this week. I'm sure you all have seen it by now, this Beyonce video for her song called Formation. Mm-hmm. Who has seen it? Oh, I've oh, seen yeah. it. I've Sue, seen it like 10 it. times. I, it's hard not to see it. I've seen it. I love the hot sauce thing. Yeah. So, like, here's the thing with this video. Like, it's more than just a music video. It is so inherently political. Um, So the video debuts the day before the Super Bowl, and it's got all these visual references to Hurricane Katrina and the Black Lives Matter movement. And then Beyonce performs a song at the big game, and her dance crew is wearing Black Panther outfits on the 50th anniversary of the Black Panthers. It's this really, really big political move from Beyonce. And a lot of people that like her love it, and it goes viral, but a lot of people don't like it either. Um, Rudy Giuliani said it was a disgrace. One legislature from Toronto said that she should be investigated. A guy from Toronto. And I'm like, wait, wait, isn't that still go? part? Isn't that still part of Canada? Oh, it's so Canada, right? Mm-hmm. But what I love about this whole video is that it proves, at least for me, my, my theory this year, in the past like year or two, it's like everything is political right now. It's just in the air. The ethos of the Black Lives Matter movement. Everything has this feel and this tenor of energy around political things. Like it's everywhere. And Beyonce, perhaps the biggest star in the world, has placed herself in this ongoing conversation about black lives here in America. And it spawned, gosh, a thousand think pieces this week. And everyone's talking about it. I agree with you saying like the the image, like the, the, the video itself was very political and the imagery in the video. But 
using the Super Bowl, you know, like one, the most one of the most American things to show this display of women dancing on the field that look like black activists from the 1960s was one of the most stunning visual things you could do to make a political statement. I mean, I just thought it was like so provocative. Yeah. And it's like there was a certain time in pop music, like right around the recession when Lady Gaga was first like a big thing. All of the music was about partying and being rich and famous and was kind of uh, uh, this air of opulence and reaction uh, um, like to the recession. And people were just talking about money and dancing and it seemed very empty. And we've seen this new wave of, dare I say, protest music with artists like Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar and others. It's like, it's getting very political again. And I guess to touch on Ron's point, it feels in some ways like the music of 1968 in this weird, weird way. The 60s coming back in a distant echo. (laughs) All right, that is all the time we have this week. Let us know if you like the show. Rate it on iTunes. Find us on Twitter. Send us your questions. You can also email us, nprpolitics at npr.org. And catch our political coverage on your local public radio station as well. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. And I'm Sarah Buchanan, campaign reporter as well. I'm Susan Davis, and I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor, correspondent, archivist. (laughs) Archivist, I like that. We'll be back next week. Until then, thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.